From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Municipalities in Puerto Rico sue the biggest fossil fuel companies alleging their products worsened hurricanes and they colluded to lie about climate change. The complaint asks for damages, and that's what a court is designed to do. A court is designed to reimburse a party for their loss, and that's what we intend to do. We intend to reimburse the municipalities of Puerto Rico for their loss for the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season. Also, Hurricane Maria felt like the end of the world for some Puerto Ricans who lived through it. It was like all the movies that you've seen of Armageddon, of of destruction, of the end of days. It was like, this is done. And the fact that the communication collapsed meant that also we couldn't hear the government, but we couldn't hear each other. All we had was the people next to us. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. When the Category 5 hurricanes Maria and Irma smashed through Puerto Rico in 2017, they left in their wake some $100 billion in damages and thousands of people dead. Today, a group of small cities and towns in Puerto Rico are suing the biggest fossil fuel companies for damages, alleging climate change linked to the burning of the fossil fuels they sold supercharged those hurricanes. The plaintiffs allege the fossil fuel companies knew for decades that their products would change the climate, but colluded together in a disinformation campaign to deny that fact as they kept selling oil, coal, and plastic to a deceived public. The class action complaint claims that the companies, including Exxon, Chevron, and Shell, engaged in consumer fraud, antitrust violations, and racketeering in civil violation of the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization statutes known as RICO. It's a civil action as only prosecutors can bring criminal RICO charges. This case is called Municipality of Bayamon et al. versus ExxonMobil Corp. et al. and was filed in November in federal court in Puerto Rico. Other jurisdictions have sued fossil fuel companies over climate change, but the RICO consumer fraud and antitrust aspects of this action against multinational oil majors are unusual and, if successful, would be historic. Joining us now is Melissa Sims, senior counsel with the law firm Milberg, representing the plaintiff cities and towns. Welcome to Living on Earth, Melissa. Hey, welcome. Thank you. So let's talk about the various parts of this action. Your complaint says consumer fraud. What are you alleging there? So as alleged in the complaint that the defendants, in order to sell their consumer products, withheld information from the public that they knew was untrue. They had particularized internal information dating back longer than I've been alive, I'm 54 years old, saying what we all know is now true. So Exxon had an intern in 1978 that predicted with particularity what is exactly happening in this world today. And his name was Steve Kinsley. And during his summer internship, he put together a memo, which is now being released. And it really is the original memo that based the 1980s documents from Exxon as to what we are going to do with this fossil fuel problem. They talked about how they had a greenhouse problem. And this intern in 1978, 1979 put together a memo and a chart that is so eerily accurate of what is exactly happening in today's world. It has on one line of the axis, the year, on one line, the carbon in the atmosphere, and on the other line, how much the world was going to warm. And this intern in 1978 predicted what was going to happen today, tomorrow, and the future. Instead of taking that knowledge and doing the right thing, they used that knowledge and they concealed it. They colluded with one another in violation of federal racketeering laws, And they elected to embark on a deceptive campaign to change public opinion. And you can't do that when you are selling a consumer product and you have internal information and then you pay for someone else to say something that you know is untrue that violates federal law. And when you do that, you are embarking on a consumer deceptive campaign. And that's something that our law firm has done for years is sue companies for concealing information, propping up other experts, and trying to say to the public something that they know is not true. Now, why are you bringing this action with the allegations of racketeering? It sounds like, you know, mob bosses in the mafia. 
So when you have a racketeering case, all it needs to allege is that you have an enterprise. And that enterprise is consists of more than one person outside its own entity. So it could be two corporations, it could be two individuals, but it's someone outside itself. It's not a subsidiary. It's not someone who is an affiliate. It is two separate parties that get together to promote a scheme. And that scheme has to have at least two predicate offenses. And those predicate offenses are listed under the federal racketeering statute. And they include murder, robbery, all those, you know, things that you're talking about there, the mob boss type of allegations. But they also include wire fraud and mail fraud. And really, this type of case, plaintiffs do this, our firm does this quite frequently, is file racketeering cases against several defendants who are coordinating with one another to perpetuate a fraud by using the internet or the mail. Anytime you send something over the internet that is not true in perpetuation of that scheme, that that is a predicate offense. So in order to make the claim for racketeering, you just need to show as a plaintiff that on more than one occasion in the last 10 years that the defendant's participated in a predicate offense in furtherance of the enterprise. And that is what is alleged in the complaint. So talk to me about how Puerto Rico is vulnerable to climate change or the evidence that Puerto Rico is so vulnerable to climate change that you allege these companies promoted. So generally speaking, without talking about strategy of the complaint, but generally speaking, Puerto Rico is the most affected by climate change in the world. I think it was, you know, had that dubious distinction a few years ago. And the reason why is not only is it precariously positioned as an eggshell plaintiff, as alleged in our complaint, when hurricanes come through, they come through a very narrow band of the Atlantic Ocean. And that comes from the Sahara Desert, from the winds that is, you know, scientific on how these hurricanes come to be. So as they're making their way through the Caribbean, they are like spinning tops. So there's 4,000 tropical storms, more than 4,000 tropical storms every year in the Atlantic Ocean. What makes one a hurricane? What makes one fizzle out and die? We've all been to the Caribbean. We've seen storms come and go, you know, in a matter of 10 minutes, you just go up to your hotel room, come back down, it's sunny again. But Puerto Rico is, is, is different because it is precariously positioned right there in the hurricane center, in the hurricane zone. And the water around Puerto Rico has warmed faster than any other water in the world. So when these spinning tops, when these tropical storms come through the Atlantic Ocean and they bounce, if they come near that Puerto Rico warmer water, according to the scientist, Carrie Emanuel, who's quoted in our complaint, that is rocket fuel for a hurricane. So Puerto Rico doesn't have the luxury that we have in the mainland by sitting back and watching the guy wearing khakis on the Weather Channel talk about where this track in this hurricane, right? They don't have that luxury. They're at ground zero. They are at the front lines of the hurricanes. And so they are living under constant state of fear as to when these monster hurricanes are going to come through. They don't have time to prepare. There is a disproportionate number of people in Puerto Rico who are handicapped, who are disabled, who do not have the means to leave and go somewhere else like we do in the mainland. But also with that monster hurricane fine comes the massive storm surge, and that's where the flooding comes in. In Puerto Rico, caskets rose and washed down rivers. So people of Puerto Rico had to watch caskets flowing down rivers. People were laying in their beds and were drowned because of the massive flash flooding. So Puerto Rico is not only just affected by that, but it's also affected by vectors, by mosquitoes, by dengue fever, by Zika virus. And all of that, as the climate gets warmer, and it has in Puerto Rico, as that climate gets warmer, the people of Puerto Rico are affected disproportionately than anyone else in the world. Why do the damages to Puerto Rico from Hurricane Irma and Maria fit within the provisions of the RICO statute? Well, the damages are directly related to their racketeering activities, as alleged in the complaint. So in order to prove a case, any case, not just this case, but any case, you have to show that the defendant's conduct was a substantial factor in the plaintiff's damages. And of course, you can do a simple Google search and you can read the scientific articles that we have alleged in our complaint to show that scientists now are showing that the rainfall itself related to the 
Hurricane Maria was five times to 10 times more likely to be a cause because of climate change. The defendants are the major coal and fuel producers in the world. Actually, the Climate Accountability Institute actually did an analysis of the companies that are most responsible for climate change, the top 100 companies, and they have an actual percentage of each one and their contribution. So we know what each defendant has contributed towards climate change, according to fossil fuels and the atmosphere. So these defendants, as alleged in our complaint, are 40.01% responsible for the carbon in the atmosphere, which directly affects Puerto Rico's damages. Now, scientists will say that any given storm may or may not be directly attributable to climate disruption, that you're looking at an overall trend, but a particular storm may or may not have been triggered by this. What's your response to that? The scientists in Puerto Rico have attributed the intensity of Hurricane Maria to be caused by climate change. It's not the storm itself. It's the intensity. And the intensity has been directly related to climate change. Now, you have done uh, RICO cases involving uh, consumer products in the past. Tell us a little bit about that. So our firm, Milberg, has been involved in numerous racketeering-type conduct over the last 20 years. So recently, with the opioid litigation, if you recall, where the opioid manufacturers and the distributors colluded together to flood the market with prescriptions, And so our firm was involved in that. And uh, one of the allegations that was in the MDL was racketeering. There's been other numerous cases with our firm and with other of our sister firms that have filed. But there are also the emission cheat cases where some of the manufacturers, auto manufacturers, colluded with the manufacturers of the emission control devices and decided to cheat uh, the consumers into believing that their products met those standards. So our firm was also involved in that. But not just those cases. There has been a swell of racketeering cases over the last 15 or 20 years where plaintiffs have been successful getting past a motion to dismiss. And that's really the goal here is to get past a motion to dismiss, to get into discovery and to find out more information that substantiates our claims, because a lot of this information has been withheld from the public. Right after the break, we'll continue our conversation with lawyer Melissa Sims about the class action lawsuit against fossil fuel companies seeking damages for the 2017 hurricanes in Puerto Rico and what she thinks the public needs to know. Keep listening to Living on Earth. you about one of our sponsors, Four Sigmatic. Wake up your mind with premium organic coffee that is really, really good for you. This isn't just any regular cup. Four Sigmatic's best-selling coffee enhances focus, boosts your mood, and even supports your immune system. Four Sigmatic is mixed with functional mushrooms, superfoods that are some of the most studied wellness supplements on the planet. Guaranteed delicious with over a million cups served, over 100,000 monthly subscribers, and thousands of five-star reviews. In addition to coffee, Four Sigmatic also offers a cacao mix, a delicious hot cocoa replacement that's both chocolatey and good for you. There's even mushroom blends that mix with anything from coffee and tea to smoothies and even soups. Visit go.foursigmatic.com earth and use the code earth to save 30% off your first order. That's go.foursigmatic.com slash earth and use the code earth to save 30%. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Now we continue our conversation with attorney Melissa Sims about the consumer fraud, antitrust, and racketeering lawsuit some cities and towns in Puerto Rico have brought against fossil fuel companies for the damages from the 2017 hurricanes Irma and Maria. Now, according to the complaint that you filed, this lawsuit, uh, evidence of racketeering dates back to 1989, when the defendants formed the Global Climate Coalition. Tell me, what is the Global Climate Coalition, and why are they included in this complaint? So generally speaking, just as alleged in the complaint, without going deeper as more information that we're aware, but so what happened was the oil companies had particularized internal documents that they were fully aware that their products were causing a change to the atmosphere and would continue to do so. So in 1978, this intern, Steve Kinsley, 
has this memo that really sparked a lot of what happened in the 80s. So after Steve Kinsley did this 1978-1979 memo, then other departments started extrapolating on that. And for a while, it appeared that the oil companies were interested, you know, didn't really seem to take a position about what they were going to do about it. They were studying the problem, but they were fully aware of what was going to happen to our climate, that it was going to get hotter. Uh, the greenhouse effect has been, you know, coined since I think the 1800s. So everyone kind of knew what greenhouse effect was. And so they were fully aware that their products, the more we continue to use them in the atmosphere, that they would make the world warmer. So that was a really simple scientific concept. So, but then what happened was they had to make the strategic decision whether they were going to invest in alternate energy to tell the public what was going to happen if we continued to use these fossil fuel-related products. But they chose the latter, and they chose to not tell the public what the truth was, and they colluded with one another, and they formed the Global Climate Coalition, which on its face looks like a green company. You know, it's we call it greenwashing mm -hmm. in, the, in the legal world, but it looks like it's for the environment, right? So really what it was was a very large group, uh, thousands and thousands of members of companies that were fossil fuel dependent. And what they did is they worked together to promote their products. But at the core of it were the oil companies who were studying this issue. So in 1989, the Global Climate Coalition was formed. And it was really formed to stop the Kyoto Protocol, to stop anyone from regulating fossil fuel. And they were successful in doing that. Then they coordinated together in 1998 into a memo called the Victory Memo. And in the Victory Memo, that's really what it's called, the Victory Memo. But they colluded with other parties who were actually part of the tobacco strategists. And they were charged with racketeering criminally and civilly by the Department of Justice. But so they colluded with the tobacco strategists to be like, how are we going to hide this information? And how are we going to change public opinion so that we could continue to sell our consumer products? And what's interesting about that is in all the other racketeering cases that have been tried in the last 15, 20 years from a plaintiff civil perspective, we haven't had anything in writing. And here we actually have a memo. We have a division of labor among who was going to do what, what their goals were, and how they were going to achieve them. So it appeared that the oil companies were studying in earnest a problem. They were actually fortifying their own equipment to ward against climate change and at the same time telling the world that climate change wasn't real. So what are you asking for in this lawsuit? Well, the complaint asks for damages, and that's what a court is designed to do. A court is designed to reimburse a party for their loss, and that's what we intend to do. We intend to reimburse the municipalities of Puerto Rico for their loss for the 2017 Atlantic hurricane season and Fiona. Um, what about for consumers who purchased fossil fuels? Well, they should be reimbursed for their fraudulent purchases. Uh, that happens in all of our other consumer fraud cases, is that if you purchased a product and they, you know, deceptive, they were deceptive in telling you what the products were and, you know, their effects of it, then you as a consumer would be reimbursed. Based on your complaint where you talk about the financial losses to the municipalities here, at least how much money might we be talking about if this action is successful? How much in terms of the losses to the municipalities? hundreds of millions of dollars in actual losses. I mean, their roads were washed away. Their sidewalks were washed away. They spent overtime for all of their police officers. Some of their police officers died. Some of their fire department equipment was lost. So the losses to these municipalities was astronomical. And they've really, you know, still um, not been able to replenish those losses. This kind of litigation, as I understand it, would, if you are successful, you could perhaps even get treble damages, three times the amount that was actually done. Yeah, for racketeering and antitrust, yes. So let's say that you're able to demonstrate that these fossil fuel companies, in fact, conspired together to deny the dangers of climate disruption. What makes Puerto Rico special here? I would say that people around the world, if that is true, have all been damaged by this behavior. Science. Science makes them better because we have the science. The science has, in the last few years, without a doubt, and we have a standard called Daubert, D-A-U-B-E-R-T, 
in federal court that we have to show. And it is a consensus among scientists all over the world that climate change has caused hurricanes to be bigger, hotter, wetter, stronger, faster. And Puerto Rico experienced that. And they experienced it to the point where, what, 4,000 people died? You know? So we have a duty, I believe, to show the world what happened in Puerto Rico. Not only what happened in Puerto Rico, but how Puerto Rico handled it. They are really a beacon for the rest of the world. I mean, we can turn to Puerto Rico and how they responded to Hurricane Maria. And I don't know if you've ever been to Puerto Rico, and I encourage everyone to go. They're the finest people on the face of the earth. But there were many communities without power for six months, without power. These people were cleaning themselves with in buckets, you know, that had no power to power their phones or have air conditioning, and they were washing their clothes in buckets, and yet they were still kind to each other, you know, and and it really chokes me up thinking about the suffering that they had to deal with, but yet at the same time, they were helping each other out, and their story needs to be told. Melissa Sims is senior counsel at the law firm Milberg. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And thank you. We reached out to each of the fossil fuel companies Melissa Sims mentioned in our interview. The only one that got back to us by our deadline was Shell. A spokesperson sent a statement that read in part, Addressing a challenge as big as climate change requires a truly collaborative society-wide approach. We do not believe the courtroom is the right venue to address climate change, but that smart policy from government, supported by action from all business sectors, including ours, and from civil society, is the appropriate way to reach solutions and drive progress. To read the full statement from Shell, visit the Living on Earth website, LOE.org. The impact of devastation from Hurricanes Maria and Irma in 2017 can be measured in huge numbers, ranging from wind speed and inches of rain to property damages and lives lost. And to tell the human side of losses as well as resilience in the face of such catastrophe, we go into our archives now to present a story Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom brought back from Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Category 5 Hurricane Maria. Half a mile. Keep left onto Camino. Antonio Rodriguez. To get to Umacao, Puerto Rico, you can take Highway 53, past McDonald's, grocery stores, and car dealerships. Except for the palm trees, it feels like you could be anywhere in the U.S. But turn up the narrow, twisty mountain road towards Umacao, and it's a different story. Electrical poles stick out of the ground at awkward angles. Electrical wires hang casually over the road swaying in a light breeze. There's a lot of posts that look like they're about to fall on people, trees that look near highways that look like they're about to fall on cars. And that actually happened. Cristina Nieves is director of the Proyecto Apoyo Mutuo, the mutual aid project, based in a community center at the very top of the mountain in Umacao. Cristina says down power lines and unstable trees are now common here. There was a tragedy not too long ago of a, a young man dying from having a tree collapse on on top of him. So it's, you're still seeing that. Christina is petite with wavy black hair and a bright smile. She wears a flowy pink top and long earrings. She left Puerto Rico to go to college at Penn State and then got her master's degree at Oxford in England. She came back to Puerto Rico six months before Maria hit the island and settled here in Umacao, where the hurricane actually made landfall. Christina leads the way across a large parking lot to the edge of the mountain and points to a wide green valley below us. So this is where the eye of the hurricane enters. So through this valley? Yes. It actually made landfall first in this community and all of these mountains. Um, But just to describe this area where we are, so right there is the ocean. So that's obviously where the hurricane came in and just traveled up this little valley in between us here, between us, the mountain that we're standing on, and that mountain over there, and hit these homes right in front of us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Were you here during the hurricane? I was. Yeah, my house is actually not too far from here. Wow. So what did it feel like? It was 
chaotic. Uh, we prepared so well because we had basically a two-week heads up. We were prepared from Irma already. We had storm shutters were up. We got water, you know, a few days before the hurricane and we filled our cistern. But the actual hurricane, because we were so close, we started feeling it on the 19th. Uh, one in the morning, we wake up, we start feeling and hearing the sounds and it's just loud and you can barely hear each other. And um, that's when we started noticing that the water was coming in. Through Into all your the house. windows. Yeah, through all the windows, through the storm shutters. It didn't matter. It was just coming through. And at first we were actually trying to figure out if we could dry the water and like address that. And then we also started noticing that we have all of our doors, our glass sliding doors, and we noticed that the glass was bending inward. So to try to keep it from being pushed into the house, we took all of our furniture and put it, you know, backed it up from the door to the wall, like in a chain. And it was like the table and the chair and the and the bookshelf and, and everything supported each other for all the way to the nearest column. But that didn't help. And it was around four in the morning that the the skylights exploded in and then the window exploded in as well. So there was glass flying. So at that point, we actually got into the safest spot, which was a bathroom under the staircase that had no, not a lot, you know, other than the door. There was no way of getting in or out. And that's, we got in, dog, cat, three adults in this tiny bathroom and just waited. And then we started seeing the water coming in from under the door. And it's just like coming in and coming in. And we were just like, what do we do? So we, we just put everything we had and basically everything that got wet, we had to toss away. And it was just, the hurricane came in. It was not just water, it was leaves. And then the painting from inside the walls was stripped scraped off from the pressure. It was like a pressure washer had come into the house and just scraped not only outside, but inside. The paint came right off your walls. Mm -hmm. That um, sounds really scary. Oh, yeah. I, I, I mean, it was... Luis is a musician, so he was playing. My partner, he was playing the guitar. His cousin is also, you know, his entire family plays some sort of instrument. So he was playing the, you know, the drums and or the, you know, percussion. And so we were dealing with it by singing and we spent the entire hurricane like that and then once we actually got into the bathroom there was not a lot of space so we kind of took a, a, a nap some sometime in the middle of the night because it, you're so exhausted and there's nothing you can do you know everything's getting destroyed and when we came out at seven in the morning we noticed that our 2,000 gallon cistern had something had come off so the entire cistern was emptying out and that was just at the moment when the wind started changing directions. We never felt the calm of the storm. We were kind of, it was basically the, the wall of the eye. We never got the actual eye. Mm. So this was like the wall of the eye just passed right through us. So we got the, because of our altitude, we also got the strongest winds and um, some of the storm shutters were actually pulled off from the wall. It was something so massive that you can't quite understand it and comprehend it when you see that something that's designed to withstand storms didn't, that's when you realize, okay, we're dealing with something that's beyond the scales that we're used to. Yeah. And so this forest right in front of us, I mean, you can see that it used to be a forest and it still is to some degree, but there's no leaves really on the side of the trees and the, all of the tops are cut off at the same length, at the same height. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so all of these trees that you see here, they were massive. You couldn't see beyond them. It was so thick, you couldn't see the the houses even. It looks much better eight months later because nature is so wonderful and it can bounce back so much faster than human beings can in, in many ways. Yeah. That was actually one of the first things I noticed that even before FEMA had arrived to Mariana, we were seeing the trees bouncing back. So the trees were faster in their response than FEMA even. Yeah, it looks like a big chainsaw went through and just cut the tops off everything and stripped the sides off the trees. Yeah, no, it, it was like a bomb exploded. And it was also, if you had come here the days after, it looked just like sticks, like matched sticks, just like sticking up. Everything looked gray. 
And it was actually one of the hardest things because if people that live here obviously love nature and it's one of the reasons why I moved back and it was very hard to see the amount of destruction. When you came out here, you know, the day or two after the hurricane and you looked out here, how did it make you feel to see it look so different, to see the trees just denuded? Well, when we walked out of the bathroom and went to one of the windows in the house, we were on the bottom part of the house. Oh my God. I, Luis actually, my partner started crying because those were the trees that he grew up with. And it was just a complete feeling of it was like all the movies that you've seen of Armageddon, of, of destruction, of the end of days. It was like, this is done. And the fact that the communication collapsed meant that also we couldn't hear the government, but we couldn't hear each other. All we had was the people next to us. In my two and a half weeks reporting in Puerto Rico, I heard this same sentiment over and over again. Communities were isolated. FEMA and the government were slow to respond. So people turned to their neighbors for help. In many cases, the dense forest before the hurricane had blocked their view of each other. People might not know there was a house across the street or down the way a bit. But after Maria turned the lush forest into matchsticks, neighbors could see each other for the first time and came to rely on one another for help. The people in this area understand that the government is not going to respond and save them. It's actually going to be their neighbors having, you know, the machetes ready, uh, knowing, knowing how to disinfect a wound. That's one of the things that they saw the most was wounds that could have been disinfected ended up in um, amputations. So they had to cut so many feet off because people were in flip-flops in standing water that had infections and they just couldn't, they didn't have something like iodine or something that could be easily over the counter anyone can have, disinfecting the wound at the right time. So it's that kind of education and preparedness and also community organizing to prepare for the next hurricane. After the break, we'll hear more of Bobby Bascom's 2018 story from Puerto Rico, including tales of elderly women living alone without electricity for months on end. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Support also comes from friends of Smeagol the Seagull and Smeagol's Guide to Wildlife. It's all about the wildlife right next door to you. That's Smeagol, S-M-E-A-G-U-L-L, SmeagolGuide.org. Support from our listeners is key to helping us continue providing detailed environmental news and analysis. Go to LOE.org and click donate to learn more. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. We continue now with Bobby Bascom's 2018 report from Puerto Rico after the ravages of Hurricane Maria. Most of the residents of Umacao are older, retirees who live alone and have been without electricity since the hurricane. Christina takes me to meet one of them. So let's let's yeah, go yeah. find Gloria. Okay. So I'll just follow you guys in my yeah, car. In the, okay. Yeah. okay. I follow Christina down the mountain to meet Gloria Vasquez at her house a few miles away. A downed electrical wire grazes the top of a car parked in front of her house. She's standing on her porch watering a potted pepper plant. Hello. Hello. Buenas. ¿Cómo estás? Bien, bien. Gloria. Uh, Gloria, mucho gusto. Bobby. Okay. Entonces tengo allí. Let me show her something uh, that I'm planting. Oh, of course, you can see it too. Gloria is 70 years old. She wears an oversized red T-shirt and her hair slicked back in a small ponytail. Her house sits on the side of the mountain overlooking the valley. She can see clear to the ocean some 40 miles away. Before the hurricane, Gloria says she could only see the dense forest in her yard and an avocado tree taller than her house. Tree, it was so big, tall and. It filled me very, very bad, and I cry like crazy because I don't think that, that Puerto Rico is going to be like that, you know. Uh, you didn't think it could look like that? No, no, no. No, I don't think it's going to be like that. Uh, and it's still, I hurt. I feel, you know, about what happened to Puerto Rico. 
Gloria has accepted her lost trees and the broken landscape, but she's still struggling to deal with the day-to-day life, living alone without electricity. It's hard. It's hard. Sometimes I sit there and I cry because the light, I need the light, you know? I don't have no fridge to cool my stuff because I got uh, diabetes and I need to put the insulin in the freeze. So what do you do? No, what I do, sometimes I take it to the ladies, my neighbor, Sandra, and then Sandra, uh, let me, give me a key to put them inside the the refrigerator. Then she got a a generator. So what do you do? How do you manage it at nighttime? Okay. By 6.30, I started getting darker, so I locked the, the gate, and I locked the door, and I stay inside the house. Because you don't know. You know, it's a lot of thief here. A lot of theft? Yeah. They ask me, oh, you there by yourself? No, I'm not by myself. I got a husband. My husband is a police and he's working. Gloria lived most of her life in the Bronx. She moved there as a teenager with her family and worked for 50 years, mostly as a hairdresser. She saved her money all those years to retire in her native Puerto Rico, where she bought this three-bedroom cement house. Yes, you want to come inside the house? Yeah. This is the living room over here, in my dining room and the kitchen. You see it's dark. Let me get the, the flashlight. Gloria shows me around her dark house. She pauses at a crush and a statue of the Virgin Mary given to her by her mother. Yeah, she gave me this one and this one here. And uh, they're always here with me. Mm-hmm. Those are the ones they take care of me. She points out framed pictures of her grandchildren and her three sons. That's my baby boy here Aww. when he graduated. How old is he now? He's going to be 40. Oh. And uh, that's me when I graduated from uh, um, beauty school, Midway Beauty School in New York. In her tidy kitchen, Gloria has a few vegetables on the counter, a gas stove, a refrigerator empty but for a bottle of maple syrup, and a small red cooler on the floor where she keeps perishables like milk. But I don't buy no meat because meat is getting worse quick. It goes bad quickly. Yeah. So what do you eat then? If I want to eat something, I go into the store right there, buy whatever I want to eat, and then I bring it. Today, I'm going to eat um, verdura. Vegetables. Yeah. This is my dinner for today. And you have an eggplant and, eggplant and plantain. Eggplant, eggplant banana, and, uh, and potato. That's my, my dinner and my lunch. It's going to be today. And this, jamonilla. That's like a this spam. Yeah, spam. And then I cook it, and I eat half, and I left the other half for later. That's, that's the life here. Hard, hard, but, you know, what am I going to do? That's the life for most of the residents in Umacao. The majority of people here are elderly, living alone and without power. That isolation can be depressing and deadly. But since Maria hit, locals are looking to each other for solace and sustenance. The next day, I drove the twisty road back to the mountaintop community center in Umacao. Half a dozen older women have gathered today to cook for their neighbors, as they do each week, Monday through Friday. There's a sign out front that indicates when they'll be cooking and says, Aceptamos donativos solidarios. We accept solidarity donations. For $5, anyone can buy a homemade lunch of rice, beans, and meat. Maybe some fruit if one of the ladies has extra papaya or pineapple coming up at home. Today, a woman, ironically named Maria, is cooking up chunks of pork. Uh-huh. Pork. I like to make them soft and nice and tender. Take a bite. Very good. It is. It is. And you can make it with this and rice and beans. Oh, God, we're eating good here. Maria says coming here to feed the community is a type of therapy for her. She gets out of her lonely dark house for the day and cooks with her friends. They chat about family and argue like sisters. Life feels normal again. This theme of working together and resilience is everywhere in Post Maria, Puerto Rico. About nine months after the storm, a local musician named Hooray for the Riff Raff produced a song in part about recovery on the island. 
The music video shows scenes of a hurricane-ravaged community and tells the story of a young family trying to work through it. From El Barrio to Arecibo Palante From Marble Hill to the coast of Emmett Palante is truncated from the Spanish phrase para adelante, which literally means move forward. But Umacao community organizer Cristina Nieves says it means much more than that now. So palante means it means that we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep rising and, and we're going to keep fighting. And I think it also means um, for me and for what we're doing is about connecting with the root We'll look back at this moment in history and it'll, I think it'll, it'll have a huge fork on the road where in, in what it, it does to the Puerto Rican psyche. Um, the conclusion at the end of this disaster that still, we're still living it is that it was us, we were the ones that could respond. Um, we were the ones that had to and that were capable of saving lives and it was community members that were able to, that, that were capable of doing it. Um, so, palante. We keep doing, we keep building. To my mother and my father, I say, Palante! If there's any silver lining to the devastation that Maria brought here, it might be this a renewed sense of community, Puerto Rican pride, and resiliency that people hope will keep them moving forward to rebuild and meet the next challenge together. To all who lost their pride. Living on Earth, Bobby Baskin. To all who had to survive, I'd say, palante. To my brothers and my sisters, I'd say, palante. Palante. Just ahead, our weekly trip beyond the headlines with Peter Dykstra. But first, this note on emerging science from Don Lyman. A study published in the journal Nature demonstrated that hurricanes might act as a force in natural selection for certain lizards. Scientists were already studying a species of anole, Anolis scriptus, a small lizard native to the Turks and Caicos, when Hurricane Irma hit their study area in 2017. The scientists returned to their research site after the storm and observed that the surviving lizards had longer forelimbs, shorter hind limbs, and bigger toe pads on average than the overall population of lizards present before the hurricane. The researchers speculated that perhaps these body characteristics might have helped the remaining lizards survive the hurricane, meaning hurricanes could be a factor in natural selection, possibly affecting the evolutionary trajectory of the lizards. But the scientists also wanted to know how the lizards survived the hurricane to begin with. Did they hide on the ground or in crevices in trees? Or did they ride the storm out by clinging to branches and tree trunks? To find out, they took lizards back to the lab where they perched them on small wooden poles, then simulated hurricane-force winds with a leaf blower, gradually ratcheting up the velocity. The researchers found that the lizards stayed on the perch as opposed to fleeing and moved to the lee of the perch, the side away from where the wind was blowing. As wind speeds increased, the lizards lost hold with their hind limbs first and hung on by their forelimbs until the wind was strong enough to blow them off their perches, unharmed, into a safety net. If the lizards chose to hide from the wind, there would be no reason to think longer or shorter limbs would have anything to do with their survival. But because the lizards chose to ride out the storm on their perch, longer forelimbs could be advantageous. Scientists caution that there may be other explanations for the body characteristics of the surviving lizards. But hurricane-induced natural selection, or in this case a leaf blower, seems like the best explanation. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Don Lyman. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia, is Living on Earth commentator Peter Dykstra. Hi there, Peter. What do you have for us today? Well, hi, Steve. You know, sometimes people use that old phrase, it's raining cats and dogs. 
But in Florida in recent years, it's been iguanas falling from the sky when Florida has one of its occasional cold snaps. The reptiles literally freeze in the trees and eventually just tip over, hit the ground, or maybe even hit somebody upside the head. (laughs) Well, of course, they are cold-blooded lizards, so there you go. But when they're big, that must be quite a risk. They're an invasive species. They can do some damage if they're healthy and unfrozen. Iguanas can carry bacteria like salmonella. They can eat plants and even small animals. And their digging and rutting can cause damage to seawalls and canal banks. Of course, Burmese pythons are an even bigger fright to the extent that they've disrupted the ecosystem of the Everglades. So cold weather would usually knock back the iguanas and a big snake like a a python, but apparently these, these critters are adapting to our changing climate. There's been some recent research to suggest that the iguanas are actually adapting to the colder weather they're not used to in the tropics and that they are freezing and falling less often. Oh, boy. Well, you know, climate disruption... I guess the animals are adapting. Adapt or perish, huh? Hey, what else do you have for us? Starting in October, England is going to ban some single-use plastic products, plates, trays, bowls, forks and spoons and knives, polystyrene cups, food containers. This is England, mind you. It's uh, not all of the United Kingdom. There's a huge volume, as there is in any developed country, of plastic where used and immediately thrown away. Only 10% of all those plastic products are ever recycled. England has already banned plastic straws and some other things a few years ago, but they're still behind Scotland and Wales. They're behind the rest of the EU, which of course they're no longer a member of the European Union. They are ahead, of course, of the United States, which has done little or nothing That's right, Peter. There are some towns that have banned uh, the use of plastic bags. I think even entire states have, uh, like Maine. But uh, the United States, no. I remember being in London just before the pandemic really hit, and surprise, surprise, already the straws uh, and drink stirrers had, had gone away, and people were lamenting it. This has stirred up some controversy. I suppose that England is so far behind. People are tough to adapt. And of course, in this country, an added factor is that the oil and gas industry, remember all those plastic things come from petrochemicals, are viewing plastics as a possible safety valve for the industry as climate concerns may continue to cut back the use of fossil fuels to drive our vehicles, heat our homes, any other uses. Plastics can be another way for the petrochemical industry, the oil and gas industry, to stay alive. And even at that, they're a contributor in their own right to climate change. That's right. Hey, what do you have from the vaults of of history this week, Peter? January 29th, 1886, a German engineer with a name that lives on today, Carl Benz, applied for the first of three patents for a three-wheeled, chain-driven, gasoline-powered, horseless carriage, sort of a precursor to the modern automobile. He had all three patents granted. The Benz Company grew in the early 20th century. They merged with a rival company, Mercedes, and that brand name lives on today, and it's pretty costly. And actually, one of the most important stories about Carl Benz is his wife, Bertha Benz. She not only made it financially possible for him to do this, but also invented some of the components, gearing systems so that new horseless carriage with three wheels could climb hills, and also brake pads so you could slow the thing down. I'll have to take your word for it, Steve. I was too young to have been there. (laughs) Okay. Peter Dykstra is a Living on Earth commentator. Thanks so much, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. All right, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And there's more on these stories on the Living on Earth webpage. That's LOE.org. We travel to Las Marias, Puerto Rico now with Koki frogs. Kokis are endemic to Puerto Rico and a national symbol for the island. 
Many frog species, including cokies, were heavily impacted by Hurricane Maria, but within months of the storm, they could once again be heard across the island. A welcome sign that life would eventually get back to normal. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom recorded these cokies in the mountains of Puerto Rico on a June evening in 2018. Next week on Living on Earth, the controversy surrounding entanglements of North Atlantic right whales with fishing gear. Researchers say the vast majority of the right whales have been caught up in ropes from lobster fishing gear, which can be deadly. But there is a better way, and people are working to develop gear that doesn't require the vertical ropes that can entangle the whales. If we think protecting right whales and other marine species is important, and we've enshrined that in things like the Endangered Species Act and the Marine Mammal Protection Act, we have a responsibility as a society to help fishermen through this. This is not their fault. Entanglements happen as industrial accidents. There's no fisherman out there that wants to hurt uh, right whale or any other species. And so the solution to that then is subsidizing the cost of the purchase of the gear. You can hear about efforts to design affordable, whale-safe fishing gear next time on Living on Earth from PRX. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Fern Allen, Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Paloma Beltran, Iris Chen, Josh Kroom, Jenny Doring, Mark Couch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Just Neil Mahal, Louis Mallison, Ainsley O'Neill, Sophia Pandolitas, Jake Rigo, L. Wilson, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Learishteen composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth, and you can find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio, and you can write to us at comments at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. <laughs>